Hello and welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast where we explore the face of Mennonite peacemaking in the 21st century. I am one of your two hosts for this podcast, Hannah Heinzicker, and I'm the executive director for the Mennonite publication. And I am joined, as always, by my trusty co-host, Jason Boom, the director of the Peace and Justice Support Network. Hey, Jason. Always look forward to being in the Peace Lab and uh, exciting conversation today. That's right. This is a friend of yours, an esteemed colleague and friend of yours that we have with us on the podcast today. We've got the Reverend Leonard Dow, who is a longtime pastor at Oxford Circle Mennonite Church and now is serving as the Stewardship and Development Specialist for Everance. So, Leonard, thanks for being here with us. It is good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, it feels like when we were trying to think about directions we could go with this podcast, it felt like there were so many different directions we could go in. But to start with, Leonard, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the story of your time at Oxford Circle. And I know you really nudged that church along and encouraged them to do community development work. That was a big part of your work there as a pastor. And I wonder if you'd just share a little bit of that story with our listeners. Sure. Yeah. I I came into uh, uh, Oxford Circle kind of in the old-fashioned way, I guess you could say, in that I was a banker prior to my role as pastor, and I was a member of the congregation and at a time of transition in the late 90s, um, I and a couple of other brothers at the church kind of took on some leadership roles in the role of pastor. And through that discernment, the congregation then asked me to step in. And so uh, December of 98, I was a banker. In January of 1999, I became, uh, became a pastor with no seminary or previous experience. And so that allowed, you know, sometimes uh, what you don't know is helpful. I was able to bring a lot of my banking background, uh, business background, dealing with people, hiring and firing people, though we don't do that necessarily in the church structure. Uh, some people would like to, but we don't, thankfully. And and so I was able to bring that into my role as pastor. And one of the challenges for us in Philly, Philadelphia, with our congregation was it was primarily an ethnic Mennonite church up until that point, people who had relocated from, say, Lancaster or Franconia or, or other Mennonite diaspora places uh, had relocated to Philly, and, and that's wonderful, but when and if uh, they were either close to retirement or, and most often, uh, their schooling, they transitioned out. And so leadership and longevity was kind of a six- to eight-year period, and then we had to start over again. And, and so one of the things that I wanted to bring into the church or one of the gaps I saw was indigenous local leadership. You know, how do we build from within as well as bring in those who relocate to the city? And so I really began on this journey asking, you know, why does God have us here on this particular corner at this particular time? Out of that came a unifying question of if God loves the city and if God loves Oxford Circle, how will this community know? And that became our kind of our core question. And even to this day, I uh, was just in a meeting uh, with some people from the church and our nonprofit yesterday, and that same question is still resonating. And so that was the question that we start asking, you know, why does God have us here? And when we start asking, if you're not afraid to ask that question, you also got to ask the question, is, is our season as a church, is perhaps our season is over? And we went through that, but it, it came out that, no, God has us here for a reason, and we want to find out. And so we started, interestingly enough, Hannah, with taking a year off and shutting down everything, meaning that we didn't do our Thanksgiving bonanza or bazaar, I think is what they called it. We didn't do our Christmas pageant. We didn't do our church retreat. We didn't do 
Wednesday night prayer. We didn't do any of those type of things. We fasted, we prayed together, we gathered on Sundays, and we were still before God and really to say, Lord, what would you have for us to do? And, and that really kind of set us on a course on really being open to anything and letting go a lot of, I would say, idols that we had to let go and then open up our eyes to the community around us. I kept asking God to send us um, people and God kept responding to me, you know, in my spirit, uh, everything that you need and every person that you need is right there in your own community. And for us, that was a different mindset of believing that the people that we need, the resources that we need, and all those things are going to come from within our own local community. So that was the beginning. And so one of the first ways that we wanted to uh, understand our community was through a community, uh, they call them community assessments now, or a needs assessment. I don't like that word needs, but the idea of an assessment. And so we went out (laughs) and canvassed our neighborhood and we just asked, you know, we have social workers and people who are a lot smarter than me, like you and Jason in our church. And, and so they had about 40 questions that they wanted to ask around demographics and, and jobs and family and all this stuff. And I only had one question that, that they allowed me to ask. And I, my one question was, do you know that there's a church on the corner of Howland Langdon? Surprisingly, not to me, but to our congregation was a church that had been there for 50, 60 years at this point. People didn't know we were a church. People didn't know we were there. And that, for many in our church, was a wake-up call. They thought the community knew, but they didn't know. And it turned out that our community was, was in transition, transitioning from a primarily either Jewish or Irish in our community to a multi-ethnic to now it's the most diverse community in the city of Philadelphia. So that one question, if God loves the city, if God loves our community, how can we show this community love, led us to then going out to the community and actually asking, (laughs) you know, what's going on? Included in that was prayer walking and stuff like that. And then from that, one of our first initiative was our uh, community festival, which was just a a bare bones attempt to, for me and other leaders in the church, to get us out of the pews and into the street, into the community. And stop asking people to come to us, but let us go out and see what happens. And uh, that was in 2001 or 2002, we held our first community festival. And I would love to say that 5,000 people showed up that day and lives were transformed. But the reality is it rained for like four out of the first five hours. (laughs) 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 Uh, It was so disheartening. So disheartening. The one thing I did see in the couple of months leading up to that was this energy, this move, this anticipation that we don't know what's going to happen, but if we're faithful to what we understand God is calling us, something good is going to happen on this day. Let's find out. You know, uh, one of the sayings that we started talking about at Oxford Circle is let's fail boldly. Let's be bold about it. You know, <laughs> you know, if we're going to do this, let's not do it half-stepping or, or, or partial. Let's engage in it. And um, even in that hour or maybe two hours of uh, damp community festival, a couple hundred people came out, mm-hmm. most of whom we had never met before. And that excited us. 
the next year did rain again, but 15 plus years after that, we have not had a rain date since. And the last time that we did this, I think, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 people now come out annually. That was our first attempt. And then from that, some other things just really began to grow. Um, and I can go into detail about it, but if you want to direct me in a question, that's, or I could just simply just go on about what, what, what happened immediately after that. Yeah, I think we do want to hear that. I think a question that's jumping out to me, even in the midst of that, is that can be a pretty radical paradigm shift for a church to say, okay, well, church is about us, right? It's yeah. Sunday, and we get fed, and we do this. And so, yeah, how did you get people on board with that? Did you find that was difficult, or you know, just talking about at Oxford Circle, you know, was that embraced? No, we had no conflict, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> now that's big news. <laughs> Now that is, that is very much. No, and I don't mean to make light of the people who were there in, in that time. It was very stressful. One of the things to your point, Jason, is the question of how do you manage that? It's going to be stress. Anytime there's change, there's stress. I don't know why we get in our mindset that we think when we're seeking to, to, to move in a new direction or a new paradigm, that is going to be easy. No, there's nowhere in history that I can find in a biblical narrative. So one of the ways I knew... Before the community festival, I tried some things to move the church in my own strength. So, for instance, um, I would go out on, on Saturdays before Sunday morning and knock on the neighbor's doors and tell them that I'm the new pastor in town and would love to have them come visit us at Oxford Circle. And most times they thought we were Jehovah Witnesses, <laughs> which is more of an affirmation of the, of the Jehovah Witness and, less of, and more of an indictment on us. But no one ever came. You know, that cold calling... No, in, in our today's society, that's not, in my opinion, not the best use of your time. But back then I tried it. This one Sunday, this young woman came, and I tell the story often, she came with her three children, after, happened to be African-American woman. At this point, our church had about 25, 30 people, all of whom were white, except for my wife and I. So she comes, and I was greeting people at the door at this stage in our church uh, life, and I helped her in, and with her three kids, I had her... Uh, walk, follow me in, and the church could fit about a hundred, so she could sit anywhere. But I wanted her to sit next to someone in the church, and I asked a woman who was part of the church for a number of years to kind of slide over, so that this new family could uh, have a place to sit. And it's always good to have an adult on both ends of the children, right, to keep them. <laughs> so when I asked this woman to uh, just say Mary, it wasn't her name, but just say Mary, I said, Mary, could you slide over? We have some visitors this Sunday. Mary looked at me. She was in her 60s, looked at me and said, Leonard, I've been sitting in the seat before you were the pastor, and I'll be sitting here when you are gone. Oh. <laughs> and so, you know, I use that as a story, not as an indictment on Mary, because later I, I found out that Mary was tired, and Mary had been part of the church for a number of years, and now this young whippersnapper pastor is, is talking all this crazy stuff and and she was tired at that point I wasn't feeling all of that <laughs> I was embarrassed I was ashamed but it also made me aware that as a leader my goal wasn't to drag the church kicking and screaming in a direction that the spirit of God wasn't moving and there wasn't a move happening in the church in other words I couldn't be the only one leading that we as a congregation had a sense that God was calling us together to move 
yes, my role as a leader, I have certain responsibilities, but it had to be more than me. And so I had to actually back up Jason at that point, and I stopped inviting people to the church <laughs> because it's just like family, right? You know, if you got some craziness happening in your house, you don't want nobody to come. And we had to deal internally with some stuff. And so I backed up and I did a lot of preaching. I did a lot of teaching. I did a lot of sitting. I sat with Mary. I did a lot of listening. I, I did a lot of vision casting as to what is God's preferred future for us so that when we did do this community assessment, there was some momentum. You know, out of the 30 people, there was maybe five or six of us that were ready. You don't need the whole congregation, but you do need a core group that is, is, is moving in this direction. And you also need the majority of the congregation who may not say, go ahead and do it, but they might not say, stop it or is against it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I had a small percentage that was ready to go. The rest of them was waiting for us to fail. And by God's grace, we kept moving. And then along the way, people like Mary became one of our biggest uh, volunteers and, and participants in some of the ministries that God enabled us to do. So um, I don't know if I answered that question, Jason. No, a lot of wisdom in there. Yeah, I mean, moving people, walking with them, you know, right. instead of trying to pull them. And the, hardest, and, and the hardest thing is not to condemn people because they disagree with you or condemn people because not everybody is, is, is wanting a new thing. Not everybody wants the community to come. Everybody wants the community. No, everybody wants the community to come. As long as the community come and pray like you, sing like you, understand scripture like you. Because when a community come, and especially if it's a diverse community like ours, they're going to bring with them their issues. They're going to bring with them their perspectives. They're going to bring with them their hopes and dreams. And sometimes, you know, you got to adjust that. And so... I had to come to recognize that just because people were not moving in our direction didn't make them necessarily my enemy and not to take it personally, but it's hard. <laughs> I wonder if you could dig into that idea that you just touched on, because as you went through this process, the demographics of your church also shifted, right? Oh, yes. Um, and you became a much more diverse congregation in a lot sure. of sure. How did you work at building those cross-cultural relationships and what do you think are some of the struggles and gifts of that process that you went through? The one thing I, I, I share to pastors is that a multicultural or cross-cultural congregation is not a church growth strategy. <laughs> it is not uh, designed to grow, uh, as I call them, cheeks in the seats. Um, I think it's a kingdom strategy, but it's not a church growth strategy. Why? Because when you bring people from different social economic, different uh, faith or non-faith backgrounds, different political persuasions from uh, different ethnicities, there's going to be opportunity to practice the ministry of reconciliation on a weekly, daily basis. Now, the upside about being in an urban environment compared to, say, some of our rural or more of our rural suburban uh, Mennonite congregations is that we also already are living, in some cases, near and close proximity or working in close proximity with diverse people groups, etc. So diversity is, is normative to us. What's different 
often in the church structure, which really became an issue for me as the pastor, is that the power dynamics change with me being in the lead role as pastor. People love talking about diversity. I love my white brothers and sisters, but when diverse, we're cool with diversity until the power dynamic shifts <laughs> and decisions are made differently and resources are distributed in a different way and, and defining what Anabaptists and who's engrafted into the Anabaptist family compared to who's a real Mennonite, you know, all those dynamics start kicking up and you got, and I and others at the church had to be willing to speak into that and, and talk about it. I did a lot of one-on-one conversations because we were small. So I didn't have the dynamic of, of small groups and stuff like that, but I did a lot of one-on-one. I did a lot of home visits. But to be truthful, Hannah, I would say of the 30, 35 people who affirmed me in my role as pastor, to my knowledge, only one or two of those families are still present at the church. Okay. So there's a lot of transition. A lot of transition. A lot of transition. Some of it was natural. Some people retired, but others got called back to Lancaster, to Franconia. <laughs> and, um, and, that was, and that was difficult. That was difficult. But it also created space, and it also positioned me as a leader to be more dependent on God, his direction, and what he was going to do within Oxford Circle, and less dependent on the one or two, three families that I knew from a financial perspective was uh, keeping us afloat. Yeah. But I had, I should warn you though, I had hair. Uh, <laughs> Unless I see photographic evidence, I'm not going to believe it. <laughs> yeah, like, those, that's right. That's right. For those who don't know, I'm, I am bald now. So I don't want to give any type of impression that in faith I walked and did not stress about it. Yeah. Um, I knew that some of the families that were transitioning were financially and, and volunteer wise, and, and they had been the, the heart of the church. But the direction that we were going, they just felt that they either didn't have the energy or the call to move in that direction. And I had to, and, and I had to respect that. You touched on a dynamic here, and I'm going to go off script a little bit. So, you know, rein me back in if this is not where we want to go. But it's, it's fascinating to me as someone who wasn't born Mennonite. And I'll be honest, like most of the time, I don't feel like I'll ever be like real Mennonite. Yeah, you know, yeah. I feel like this is the, the group that I want to be a part of and everything makes sense and I have good personal relationships, but yeah, yeah. fully invested. Sure. You, especially as, a, as a, a person of color, do you feel like you're Mennonite through and through? Or are there still barriers there that you find yourself bumping up against? Oh, you're not going to be able to put this out in public. <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness, Unlike you, Jason, I think I have a little bit more of a longer history in that I went to a Mennonite high school, Christopher Dock. I went to a Mennonite college, Eastern Mennonite University. And even prior to me coming to being part of the um, Oxford Circle, I worked at a financial institution in Soderton. So most of the people I worked with were part of the Mennonite church. So culturally, in some aspects, I had the Mennonite-ism. And I separate Mennonite-ism from Mennonite. Because, you know, the ism part is the cultural piece. And so my wife, who is also uh, grew up Mennonite, but she grew up in Puerto Rico, to some extent, she gets frustrated because I have the Mennonite isms. You know, I can do the Mennonite game, um, not from my name, but just from school, from Christopher Dock, from EMU. I served for a little bit with MCC, so I can do the Mennonite game through service with MCC. So I know how to do that. But to be honest, to your point, Jason, 
I'm engrafted in to the family and I know that. And it used to bother me uh, to the extent of feeling at arm's length. To some extent, I've come to accept that and I've invested too much of my time and and, and, um, resources and all those things at this point to be able to name another uh, group of community. In my good days, I've come to accept it. In my difficult days, um, you know, it does hurt the soul a little bit. I use the example that I went through four years of high school, four years of college, 10 years of working at Univest, and all that time, I was never invited by anyone within the Mennonite church to church. No one ever invited me to come and, and just visit, not because I'm not a Christian, but that was never part of, they've, you know, they invited me to their family gatherings, to vacations, to birthday parties, to other social functions, anniversaries, and things like that. And because of my athletic ability at the time, I was pretty popular, but no one said, hey, Leonard, why don't you come with me to church? And I don't say that as, a, as an indictment. I say that as a gap within uh, my Mennonite brothers and sisters, ethnic Mennonite brothers and sisters, that when you're on the outside, when you're on the inside, you don't quite fully understand how difficult it is to get in. (laughs) And I could tell you time and time again, Jason and Hannah, how many times I've been told that what we're doing at Oxford Circle over the years that I was a pastor is something that happens in the city, but we're not real Mennonite. I mean, I, I was told that on more than a handful of occasions that we're not real Mennonite. So I receive it, and in some cases I push back. That's the reality. And I wrote a couple of articles about, you know, can anything good come out of Philadelphia, um, just around despairing marks, remarks said by a variety of people. And the upside of that dysfunction <laughs> is that it motivated me. It motivated me to prove people wrong that something good can come out of Philadelphia. Some of the things that Anabaptists historically have done well, creating small businesses, generating income in a just way, seeing that income recycled in the same communities, uh, creating space for people to to do service, not so much uh, out there, but creating service opportunities within your own community, all those things. I said, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it our way, and I'm going to do it right here in the city. So that motivated me. But like anything that motivates you in anger, at some point, you got to let that go or, or it'll eat you up. I would say from about 2007 to about 2012, when we were just uh, really starting to expand into our new space and, and utilizing that as a commercial property and generating income and gathering tenants and starting ministries, I was angry. But it motivated me. Uh, not anger to the hatred. I'm talking anger like flipping the tables like Jesus did anger. (laughs) Except Jesus only did it like once or twice in the Bible for a very brief time. I held on to it for like five years. (laughs) So, so, uh, and it's a question, Jason, and I appreciate you asking, and a question that I think during the difficult times that the church, and specifically the Mennonite church, are finding itself, some of the, uh, the more lively and engaging and growing congregations are churches of color in urban settings. And we don't talk, we being the larger church, 
don't spend enough time inviting them in, inviting us in to participate, not just on Black History Month or Martin Luther King weekend and to come to our conference events, but come, come on out and, and sit with the Living Waters, I think is the one in, in, in Chicago and, and Leslie Francisco down in Community Church down in Virginia and the churches up in New York, Oxford Circle in Philadelphia. They finally got rid of that old pastor and they got some young lions in there and lionesses that are doing some really creative stuff. And out there on the West Coast, unfortunately, we feel engrafted in. And for some of us, we're willing to recognize that engraftedness. But for some of the younger people, I don't know if that's going to be the way that they want to go. Yeah. If that makes sense. That wasn't a question on the script, uh, Jason. No, I know. He did. Jason's freestyling. <laughs> he always freestyling. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, Hannah. I, I didn't want to take us down. No, so that's a great question. No, I think it's a great question. Thank you for asking. Yeah. It's been interesting to me in this role to read more of the history and to look back at the history of Mennonite publications and read about many of the congregations led by people of color and to realize how many of those leaders are still alive but not sure. part of the Mennonite church anymore. Hannah, you, you, I mean, you it's, nailed it. You nailed it. Um, here in Philadelphia, in that article I wrote some years ago, I, I said the lifespan of an African-American leader is 25, 20 to 25 years. And meaning that it takes that long to get in a position of leadership. But then once we are in it and get out, we're gone. And nobody asks the questions why. And in Philadelphia, I run into periodically uh, former, quote, Mennonites, I guess you would say, former Mennonites. And now they're killing it, you know, with the Baptists or the Church of God or Church of God in Christ. But there wasn't enough space or being engrafted in compared to fully being embraced, they stepped away. And um, I want my children, my, my three children, to, to be part of the Mennonite church. And as every parent, you know, wants their children to kind of continue in their particular tradition. And, and, uh, but they have to know that there's a space to worship, to see people like themselves uh, in leadership roles. What's funny, and, I'll, and then you guys can ask me a pointed question, is What's funny is the people at Oxford Circle is that, I don't know, maybe two-thirds of our people are, are either first-generation Christians or first-generation people who go to church um, type. And so when they come in and connect with Oxford Circle, they assume all Mennonite churches are like Oxford Circle. <laughs> and then they'll go on vacation, say, to Lancaster or, or somewhere, where, and they'll look up a Mennonite church and they'll go and they'll say, well, they sing really well, but it was different. It's so quiet and it was all can I say this pastor all white people you know <laughs> so you know that's that's kind of the fun part about being not in Jerusalem and kind of being in Antioch is that we have a little bit more freedom to to, to kind of shape the church in a way that's consistent with our the community that we're living in that's all the time we have for this episode of peace lab but as you can tell, in our conversation with Reverend Leonard Dow, Jason and I had no shortage of interesting things to talk about. Because there was so much good stuff that came out in this conversation, we're splitting our conversation with Leonard between two episodes. This is the end of the first episode, and you can hear the next one next week on Monday. Thanks so much for listening today. You can find this episode of Peace Lab and many more on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and at the websites of both the Mennonite and the Peace and Justice Support Network. 
If you liked what you heard here, subscribe to follow our podcast and also give us a good rating. This helps other people to find our show. Peace Lab is a joint production of the Mennonite and the Peace and Justice Support Network. Our theme song is performed by David Fisher-Fast of Mennonite Mission Network. Until next time, I'm Hannah Heinzecker, one of your hosts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.